Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal. Each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices in a very casual and informal way. This is not a webinar or lecture, rather our goal is to talk about key topics and challenges in a very informal way and share best practices. I'm your host Naveen Agarwal and I'm the principal and founder at Achieve where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. In this episode, I'm joined by Steven Silverman to talk about consideration of regulatory risks in a mergers and acquisition situation. Steve is the best person to talk about this because he has experience in the industry, in consulting, as well as at the US FDA. So he has seen a very broad view and currently he advises clients to manage regulatory risks in a mergers and acquisition environment. We also talk about how this type of understanding offers a unique opportunity, a unique career development opportunity to quality regulatory folks. This was part of our conversation as a LinkedIn live event in front of a live audience. You're about to hear a recording of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Steven Silverman uh, for a conversation about regulatory risk in the mergers and acquisition environment. What should we do to understand regulatory risk so that the firms we are supporting or we are working for can get support from investors? This is such a fascinating topic and Steve is really a great person to talk to about this because he has seen the consulting world, he has seen the industry world and he has been at the FDA. So he has a lot of knowledge about medical devices in general, regulatory risk, and I'm sure you will have really a good time listening to this key message from him today. So with that, guys, I'm going to give you uh, a couple of minutes to just settle down, uh, get comfortable. You know how it goes. It's very casual. I'm going to have a conversation with Steve for the first 15 minutes, and then in the next 15 minutes, I'm going to invite you to participate because that's the whole point. The whole point is to engage with you learn from your perspective, and you have insights and comments to share. So don't hold back when I invite you to participate. With that, Steve, I'm so excited to welcome you. Please go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience today. Thanks very much, Naveen. Um, it's really a pleasure to be with you again. I think that for purposes of your audience members, rather than boring them with a detailed list of the various things that I've done professionally, it's not that great a list to begin with. Let me talk about highlights. Um, okay, so right now, I am the president of the Silverman Group. And this is a consultancy that serves medical product companies on regulation, strategy, and policy issues. I think of note for you and for your audience members is the fact that my professional experience includes about two decades in federal service where I spend a great deal of time at the Food and Drug Administration. I was privileged enough to work in multiple parts of the agency, and the last position that I held for five-plus years was director of the Office of Compliance in the Center for Devices and Regulatory Health. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's awesome. And you, you saw a lot of innovation. You saw, saw a lot of compliance. I think you, you build a good perspectives, and now you are uh, working with companies in the mergers and acquisition environment. Say a little bit more about what you're doing today. 
Sure, I'd be happy to. So, I mean, you're right. I, I, I was really lucky when I was at FDA because I think that in the device center in particular, I was present during a time when, as a function of the center's senior leadership, there really was a pivot, um, by which I mean there was a step back and a careful consideration across the center of whether or not the various components were doing the right thing. So in the pre-market product review space, for example, (laughs) were the typical methodologies that were applied to evaluate a lot of products to market, were they effective? And then the in the compliance space, was this whole model of going out and inspecting firms and issuing some of them warning letters or other citations effective? And oftentimes, the answer was no, there's a better way to do things. And so uh-huh. it was a fascinating time to be at FDA. That's really awesome. And this could be relevant from a acqu- mergers and acquisition point of view, right? When you're thinking about oh, regulatory yeah, I, risk I, and I, compliance I, risk. I, I, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, I absolutely think so. And I apologize because you did ask me about regulatory risk and I got off on a lark about other stuff. But look, right now I am running a consultancy and I was lucky enough in, after leaving FDA to work both through positions at AdvoMed, the trade association, and McKinsey, the consulting company, to work with device companies. Uh-huh. Right. And and with investors. And to see that investors have a great, great deal of understanding of risk associated uh-huh. with companies that they are evaluating for investment and sometimes acquisition. But regulatory risk is an area that is extremely murky. And by regulatory risk, I mean the kinds of events that can occur in the regulatory context that affect device firms directly. So pre-market, right? Regulatory risk can um, encompass things like um, issues that arise while a device is being evaluated that raise questions or concerns on the part of regulators, Mm -hmm. and they're going to have an impact on the review pathway. How long is it going to take and what's it going to cost to get the product across the finish line? In the post-market context, um, does a device maker really understand um, what it means that a firm that is, for example, marketing products has been inspected and that there yeah. were some findings from the inspection and the firm now needs to now do things to remediate the findings. And, you know, Naveen, what, what I would say, forgive me for talking a bit longer and then I'll pipe down and let you respond, is that for your audience, right, let's, I mean, I want to I flip the lens a little bit, which is to say, okay, you don't have an audience of medtech investors yeah you have an audience of people who are inside of medtech firms and are you really appropriate question is why does this matter to me yeah um and my hypothesis is that it does for a couple of reasons first of all as you and as your audience member knows there's just tremendous movement in the medtech space of personnel and so the company that you're working for today might be different than the company that you're working for in a year that is subject to um, a, uh, an investment or acquisition activity. So knowing this stuff is important. Um, in addition, again, as your audience members know, um, you've got to deal with a lot of people inside of your company, some of whom are business professionals who are very good at their jobs, but who don't have regulatory expertise. And being able to explain to them regulatory risk and what the implications are in terms of cost, 
timelines, uh, reputation, et cetera. Uh, yeah. That, that is super valuable. So it's an opportunity for your audience members to distinguish themselves by recognizing, yes. by, by, by showing like, hey, I get this. I, I understand what what the significance of these events are and I, of these events are and I can talk about it in a way that non-experts understand and can respond so you can learn how to talk in the, in the language of business yeah I think so I mean I'm not suggesting yes I yes I mean I'm not suggesting to you, you or to your audience members that these regulatory professionals should go get their MBAs <laughs> no. and, and 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 start talking a different way but I mean it's like it, it's like any language, right? You, yeah. You know, whether it's a foreign language or whether you're right. to a scientist or or what have you, you've got to so, be able to speak their language. And uh, and especially, Steve, if if we aspire to take on a leadership role, let's say we want yes, to be totally. a vice president of regulatory affairs yeah, at yeah, one time, yeah. we got yeah. to be able to tell our CEOs, hey, if we don't take this regulatory strategy, yeah, totally. we're going to lose totally. like two years of new revenue. I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more emphatically. And just to layer on to what I think is a totally true point, and I'll say, look, I have had the chance to talk to VPs and SVPs for regulatory inside of a lot of device companies, and there is not a one of them that can't talk the way that you're describing. Mm-hmm. So I would say, I would say, table stakes, right? If yeah. you want to advance. If you want to distinguish yourself as somebody who can perform on a widespread level with multiple, multiple stakeholders, you have to show that you can be both a regulatory expert and somebody who can distill and communicate critical yeah. business messages. Yeah. And I think this is this is where conversations like these can be helpful, where we have this now idea in our mind that we should be kind of aware of this kind of skill set we have to develop. So, Steve, on that front, can you share an example of, let's say, an M&A situation where, you know, regulatory risk was important, but maybe not paid as much attention and that led to some problems? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, look, what I will say to you, Naveen, and to your audience members is that I've I've got a website. I'll give the information to access my website. and And I mentioned only because on my website, there is a particular article that I published recently. Mm-hmm. And in putting that article together, I, I did a little background research. And what I'll say is, like, yeah, there are multiple examples, and one in particular, of device firms that weren't able to accurately identify and estimate regulatory risk. Um, and as a result, they got hurt. So there's one firm in particular, for example, that was looking for um, investment revenue and in the midst of trying to seek um, investments, right, the, the firm was going through some regulatory events. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, think that it was, I think it was a combination of evaluation from FDA and there may have been some evaluation from foreign regulators as well. Mm-hmm. And... The what happened, I, as as I understand, it, is that all of these regulatory events were ongoing, and the firm wasn't able to demonstrate that it really knew with specificity and accuracy what was the significance of these kinds of regulatory engagement and what it meant in mm-hmm. terms of remediation costs, 
product review operational changes that were required. And, and the upshot um, is that this firm totally failed hmm. to, um, to bring in um, investment from outside parties. And they approached something like 50 investors, mm-hmm. all of whom passed. Right. And then that's not that's not an unusual story. I mean, as as you know, as your audience members know, medtech investment is way down. I mean, the whole medtech industry has been constricting. Um, and that's definitely had an impact on medtech investment. Investors are being are becoming they are, they're not becoming, they are much more careful and much more demanding yeah. in making decisions about where they are going to spend their money and one component that I think is absolutely necessary to give those investors confidence is the ability to identify and clearly articulate and manage regulatory risk. And the point that I make in, in the article that I that I reference is that it's not the investor's job to figure out what that risk is. There's all yeah. kinds of risk that they are better positioned to evaluate and to quantify, mm-hmm. but Regulatory risk, understanding regulatory events and the implications, that's what we do. That's bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if, if 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 we can't if we can't do that work, articulate and associate remediation steps and possible costs um, for senior managers for outside investors, um, then certainly in the investment context, I think firms will lose. Mm-hmm. And I think for people who are inside of firms, um, they're not going to succeed um, in taking on more senior positions because they don't have sensitivity to key business decisions. Yeah, yeah. So this is awesome. I think, guys, this is a perfect, perfect time to start inviting comments and uh, perspectives or questions from you. Uh, I know, Roger, you are already uh, waiting to speak, so I'm going to bring you in. And while we wait for Roger and guys, uh, other, other, other folks, please don't hesitate and don't wait. Don't wait for your turn. Raise your hand. I'm going to bring you on stage. And that way we can have a very rich conversation. And one more thing. Uh, if you raise your hand and I bring you in, I will make sure we wait for you to share your uh, perspective, even if we run a little bit over time. Okay, I know I'm very particular about time, but I, I respect everybody who wants to raise their hand. That's the whole point. So, Roger, with that, please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Roger, if you can hear me, uh, please unmute your mic and uh, share your question or comment. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Go ahead, please. Okay. So I just wanted to say, uh, Steve, something else uh, about your comment is I think for a lot of engineers, especially as they working in med tech and get a little bit more senior, they get the chance to go to a startup or maybe even get approached to uh, to become become a, a founder of a startup, and to your point, if if you're a hardcore engineer and haven't thought about subjects like regulatory risks, the the fact that you might go to a company which might be a wonderful technical opportunity, be mm-hmm. really fun to work on, but it mm-hmm. could be highly personally risky to the person if you aren't familiar with the other side of the business and cannot assess the potential regulatory risk of the company succeeding. So uh, beyond all the other things you've said, uh, we engineers can have a selfish reason for needing to, yes. to understand this a little better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, so Roger, I think, I think that you make a great point. You know, I've seen 
really, really fascinating, really, really, that's a great companies with fascinating, interesting, useful products, not make it across the finish line um, because the regulatory journey wasn't what they thought it was going to be. It was a lot tougher, a lot longer, um, and they couldn't sustain investment. Um, and, uh, you know, engineers, engineers in the med device space, I think, are brilliant. Truly, I mean the 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 value add is is you know uh, is um, off the charts. Um, so I'm not saying to again I'm not saying to engineers and who you know are kind of quote unquote hardcore med tech folks go do something different. I'm saying you are super stronger by adding to your portfolio of skills the ability to step back and think about business considerations. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely agree. All right. Fascinating. Thank you, uh, Roger, for that. Uh, David, you are on. Please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Thanks, Naveen. Um, this is really interesting, Stephen. I'm a former economist, actually, for the Federal Trade Commission, so I worked on antitrust cases, but not in my... my so I, I apologize to interrupt, but like the early part of my career was at FTC. I love that place. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Fascinating. So I have two-part question. First is, can you give us a flavor for what are some of the strategic motivations for M&A activity in the medical device industry? Is it market share? Is it new technology? What are, What's driving this change? And then the second one is kind of more in the weeds. Um, these marriages, once they're integrated, I assume are very, very complicated and very, very technical. Um, do you get involved in that part of it? Certainly in, in the precursor to an M&A, they must have an idea of what it's going to take to make this successful. I would love your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I mean, so look, um, David, um, what I would say is is this. Let me, give, let me give a couple of thoughts, and then if, I, if I'm not getting to what you're saying, um, by all means, just tell me and I'll try to redirect. Thank you. Um, Look, I, you know, I've had I've had the chance to talk to um, some senior leaders at you know large and and somewhat smaller med tech companies about this <laughs> about like what what did they look for um, in terms of acquisition because you know if you're talking about if you're talking about a, a global um, device firm, and I'm not, I won't name names. If you're talking about a global device firm that has multiple, multiple products, as you know, a big part of their growth strategy is acquisition. And what there is in the med tech space, this fantastic segment of startup companies that, <laughs> that bring really, really great products to market. And their exit strategy is, is acquisition. They don't want to be an in, independent manufacturer. They want to demonstrate that their product is great. Um, they should, they, you know, they sell to a large company and they move on to their next project. <laughs> so what's well, acquisition in and of itself is the strategy. Is yeah. What you're saying. Yes, totally, totally, mm -hmm. totally. Both, and, 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 the, and that's bi-directional, right? Top down, um, big companies and bottom up from, from small companies. And so what makes it work? And for, you know, for a while, you know, I was just kind of, dumb about this i i thought okay well great you know all that all all that it needs um to make it work is good company good idea they get fda approval or ferris and they're off to the races 
And the folks that I talked to uniformly said, no, that's absolutely not, I, that, that's absolutely not enough. What really makes a difference are firms that are able to, um, that are able to market, to, to manufacture, market, and sell their product consistently as a condition before acquisition. So small company with amazing product is not enough just to mm-hmm. get FDA's green light to go to market. You actually have to go to market. You have to demonstrate that you know how to manufacture either yourself or with an outside contract manufacturer, market, sell the product. Companies that can and, and satisfy regulatory like post-market oversight. Companies that can do that successfully, they are the ones um, that investors pick, not just companies that have a really good product. Um, And then in terms of, look, in terms of of my rule, uh, David, you know, it's, no, I do not, I do not, I do not get involved in, you know, deep, deep, deep in the weeds, like, okay, What's the um, what? What is the transition plan by which this company will be folded into the larger business? Although there are certainly consultancies that do that, um, that's not something. That's not something that I have a great deal of experience with, and 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 I don't think that it would be something that I would characterize as no, a, no worries as, as 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 a strong point for me. Um, but I, you know, I do think it's, a, I do think two things. I, a, I, I think it's important. I do think that there, that there are mechanisms in place to help with that process. Um, and B, I know that, the, that what, what you're describing represents a challenge, right? <laughs> for large medtech companies and acquired companies, right? The transition process, um, is tricky, right? Um, because you're bringing a small company into a larger company, you've got culture issues. You've got there has to be crystal clarity, yeah, um, in terms of whether there are any kind of post market um, oversight issues, et cetera, et cetera. So anyhow, enough. No, enough this is awesome. Mono. Does that does that respond to your question? Yeah. So but, da- thank you very much. So David, just just to let you know, in fact, this is has been a question of interest to me for a long time, and I'm actually working on a case study right now, which. Uh, I will share in a few weeks. Fascinating case studies. Two big companies acquire two highly innovative cardiovascular products in 2016. One of them is a winner. One of them is a loser. And I'm going to talk about that. Hopefully, it'll create some interest and some more conversation about that. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, there's a lot going on in this space. I know uh, M&A activity for MedTech is always, always one of the very, very hard things. So Rick, uh, with that, I want to welcome you. You are with us uh, on stage here. Uh, please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Thank you, uh, Stephen. Uh, this is a great conversation. Oh, good. Um, obviously, there's a lot in all this stuff, right? I was wondering, if, from a perspective, your perspective, when the regulations changes, for example, mm-hmm. we went from MDD to EUMDR, mm-hmm. how are that is a big regulatory risk for a lot of organizations. How does that impact your side of the house and what you guys do? You know, or does it? Or I, does. I, I know. I think it does. I mean, look, you know, there are, you know, there are there are what I would characterize as macro regulatory changes that are um, 
real uh, and and micro. So like micro, you know, a particular a, a particular regulatory requirement gets modified in a way that has significance for some device makers. That can be a disruptive event. That can be and it can be anxiety producing. And you know what I think what you're talking about and and what I think is really interesting is there are also these macro events. And so um, FDA is definitely definitely transitioning away from the quality system regulation um and is going to it, it is going to align I, I don't even i'm not sure what the right description is um integrate you know merge what have you it's going to align its regulatory approach um with um new and other um outside the united states regulatory requirements iso 13485 um, and that is disruptive to varying degrees um, to all companies. I think it's going to be disruptive in a couple of respects. Um, first, um, even even large companies that are used to satisfying 1345 and already do so, they're going to have to think about how they are communicating in a way that kind of meets FDA's newer expectations after this transition. Um, and... There may be some smaller companies that are not doing a lot of work outside of the United States that aren't as familiar with 13485, much more familiar with the quality system regulation. Um, and, you know, they're, they're not going to need to suddenly adopt um, new regulatory practices because there's so much consistency between U.S. and OUS regulatory requirements. But again, it's a new way of talking. Plus... I think the change inside of FDA is going to be massive. You know, on the one hand, FDA says, oh, no big deal. We'll take the time. We'll train our folks. Everybody's going to be speaking <laughs> from the same script. That's fine. Yeah. I think that's true. But I also think, like, good Lord. I mean, when yeah. you have got, like, there is, like, on the one hand, you've got, like, the head of CDRH who's able to talk, talk no problem. On the other hand, you have um, an investigator located in Missouri who's used to working with the quality system regulation has for the last 20 years and all of a sudden shows up to a device facility um, and is talking a different talk and evaluating it somewhat differently, well, that's going to be a tough conversation. So, Rick, I hope that my response answers your question. And if not, just tell me to redirect. Go ahead, Rick. Do you have any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that's part of the... was... From my perspective, when, for example, the European regulations went from MDD to UMDR, that was a that's a huge regulatory totally. risk, in particular for small mid-sized companies. Yeah. Yeah. from a clinical perspective, because they're not their clinical stuff is not up to snuff. <laughs> yeah, or the regulatory is not. Or they went from a class risk, risk class one to a risk class two B. That's <laughs> huge, and it caused a lot of stress. I look, Rick. I mean, here's here's kind of the, the the bottom line from my perspective about that. Yes, you are right. Yes, it is a risk. It's very important. It's for companies. Companies need to be aware of it and to deal with it where necessary. Um, candidly, I'm not the guy. You probably are. Like, if a company says, like, "Oh my God, this is you know something that we have to be prepared for, and it's going to affect our business, and we need to be ready to." Um, revise and represent our dossiers outside of the United States and we need help, yeah, it's a big deal. When I talk about regulatory risk, my definition doesn't encompass that, but it, 
it's not to say that it's not a, not a, not a thing. It's a huge thing. It's just yeah. outside the scope of where I'm focused and really candidly what I'm able to speak to competently. Yeah. But what I'm, what I'm hearing here, Steve and Rick, is that as QARA professionals, I think there's an opportunity for all of us. If we recognize, how, you know, based on how things are evolving and how things are moving, if we recognize potential regulatory risks in our environment, I think we have an opportunity to present a solution, an approach to our senior management, and that yes. brings it brings an opportunity for career advancement, guys. Yes. Think yes. about that. So it's yes. not just it's just not enough to say, hey, things are changing and it's going to be such a high risk. But if you can propose some new ideas and take initiative, I think you can advance your career. That's the key message I want all of us to to kind of learn from. So hey, guys, we do have. Now a little bit more time, maybe maybe one question. If you if anybody wants to share, raise your hand. But if not, I'm gonna you know let Rick, David, or Roger raise their hand if they have anything else to share. Otherwise, I'm gonna try to wrap it up. So uh, I'm calling out for uh, just one more question. If if you guys have, I'll throw something in there. Sure, go ahead, maybe David. To bridge the gap between the technical and, and regulatory. So I know of a consultant right now who's working on a merger that's like kind of towards the end. They're trying to get things integrated and they're struggling with FDA approval. And in this particular case, I know that between the, the two companies, they have more than 30 different quality management systems. Yeah, yeah. And, and so they're struggling with that. And so it's kind of a blurred line between what is a regulatory issue and what is a technical issue. but. At the end of the day, the FDA is not giving them approval. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I think it's an I think it's an absolutely I think that it's an absolutely critical concern, right? I mean, you know, and, and what's what's interesting, right, is it it directly um, I think implicates another super super interesting question that I pay attention to, which is. What does a company need to have? Does it have to have a single quality management system? Can all of the company's quote unquote business units that operate semi independently have their own quality management systems? What does FDA want? And there's no there's there's no absolute answer, right? I mean, you know, FDA will tell you, look, you know, bottom line, like we don't care, just meet the quality system regulation and if you yeah. do it through multiple systems or a single system that's up to you we can gotcha. have another conversation in another time about what i've seen that works doesn't works but what you are describing um david is not unusual yeah it raises really tough issues um and companies need to account for it and it, it the issues how do you integrate um i think present themselves regardless of the type of um, event, business event, that occurs in industry, whether it's a merger of two large companies, a large company picking up a small company, what have you. Those kinds of issues come up constantly. Good, good. So guys, we are running against the clock now, but I'm going to keep my word and invite John, who raised his hand just in time, to uh, share what he has in mind. Please be brief, John. Go ahead. Yeah, I think for uh, regulatory sakes, for what uh, Rick was saying about the implications of risk um, for the standpoint of a notified body is ultimately the proactivity and the reactivity of your system. So having a proactive system, and that's what's, you know, clients I have all the time, it's, it's always, hey, 
how what type of system do you have to for to establish the reliability uh-huh. and how you go ahead the severity how you classify that and then it's well yeah we do but we can't move it because ultimately the cost well they have that aspect of being able to go ahead and quantify it into uh, a dollar bit of it, you know, speak CFO. Yeah. You can go ahead and do that. You can go ahead and create that system that is proactive, not reactive. Yeah. As far yeah. as quarter management systems go, having multiple ones, the eyes of the FDA, yes, have what you need to go ahead and, and you, you need to establish your CGMP principles. Yeah. Yeah. But as far as establishing 1345 or any other type of schemes you utilize it's how do you integrate and how do you organize the yeah. organization and what will what gaps do you identify and how do you organize that all together is the ultimate premise of what i guess notified body wise would look at that's awesome john thanks for sharing and guys we're gonna leave it at that for now i'm gonna share with you first of all i'm gonna give first thanks steve again give him a chance to process his thoughts a little bit and share some one or two key takeaways in just a moment with us but I want to remind you a few housekeeping items. Uh, we meet every Friday, guys. So those of you who are new, put this on your calendar if you like this kind of conversation, 11 a.m. Eastern. If you miss one of these conversations, you can find a recording and some key highlights on my Let's Talk Risk newsletter. The, the link is now in the event page. You can go and sign up. And finally, I want to emphasize all of you have, without a doubt in my mind, key insights to share. And I love it when you come on board uh, on, on stage and share that just like these gentlemen have done today. If you want to be a participant, a guest in my conversation with you on these events, just raise your hand, reach out to me and uh, we'll talk and we'll plan a session with you. With that, guys, thanks again. And Steve, uh, you have just a minute or so to wrap up with some key thoughts in your mind that we should take away. I don't know if I've ever been able to talk just for a minute or so, but I will do my best. Uh, okay. Naveen, the the part of the conversation that I like the most um, is the what's in it for me piece of the conversation, uh-huh. which means for all of your listeners, I think that there is just a fantastic opportunity because you are all regulatory experts and professionals. You have the unique skill uh-huh. to spot and translate risk for others inside of your organizations in a way that will distinguish you as as invaluable resources getting those kinds of insights finding people who can keep their heads up and say hey there's not just a technical regulatory requirement that we need to satisfy there are also organizational implications that we need to manage that is gold and so if your if your listeners are able to um become more sensitive to those kinds of issues and to communicate to that to those issues fantastic and you know what, Steve, I'll add to that. Probably Chad GPT will not be able to do that kind of work. <laughs> okay, so it's job security, guys. Okay, with yeah, that, seriously. Uh, we, we leave it at that. And I, again, appreciate all of you guys showing up, uh, all of you participating so actively. This is what I love. Steve, thank you again. And uh, my guys, pleasure. everybody, have a good weekend ahead. We'll connect once again next Friday. So uh, please show up and we'll have another conversation. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.